Uh, this is um, part two of our Q&A night. And uh, once again, this is on iTunes. Uh, the Tuesday night one I recorded. Wednesday night didn't get recorded. So uh, got the, some more of your guys' questions that you guys, we wrote these all down over the month of November, maybe even part of October. So uh, I want to start off with, just like we did last week, with kind of a, a challenging question first. And get, uh, handle the, the big tough ones right out of the gate, I think would be uh, beneficial. And here's the question. It's, we have 66 books in our Bible. 39 in the old, 27 in the new. Why? How? And I realize this is a question where I think for many of us, it's an abstract answer. Uh, I, I used to say, I think there was even a Q&A night uh, four years ago where I said, oh, well, there was Constantine called for a council in Nicaea. They met 325, and they just hammered it out in like a fantasy draft sort of way. They were like, okay, I'll take Brady. I'll take Rogers. I'll take the Gospel of John. Let's put First Timothy in there. And they just kind of picked everything and decided. And, and uh, that's, I think, one of the big misconceptions when we think of our Bibles today that have 66 books. How, where, why, and... The fact is, what I think we need to understand is, especially with the New Testament, Old Testament I think is not quite as challenging, but especially the New Testament, there has always been an understanding, a wide circulation of these letters, of these books, um, through the early churches. I think that's the first thing I, I want you guys to understand. Um, it's not a matter so much that we'll see like, oh, we'll pick this book, we'll pick this book, but it was kind of like always understood. They were always understood to be authoritative, these letters, ever since they were wrote in the first century and passed down. But like any good story, there's this antagonist, there's a bad guy, and I'm a big fan of bad guys because they always make for better stories. And, and a, there's a bad guy that really plays, I think, an important role in the story of how we got the canon. His name is Marcion, uh, born in 85 AD in the province of Pontus, uh, which modern-day Turkey on the Black Sea. He was the son of a bishop, the son of a pastor, this is a, a very intelligent guy, Marcion. He is rich, he's ambitious, and along his way of life, he made his way to Rome. He joined the church in Rome between 135 and 139. He was accepted there as a member of the Church of Rome. Uh, started his time off there, given a huge gift. He was very wealthy. They say it was approximately uh, 100 years worth of the average wage. But during his time there is sometimes it happens when people join churches it went south um, sometimes people will leave sometimes people are actually forced to leave they're excommunicated and that's exactly what happened to Marcion in 144 he was told listen uh, you have really wandered from the path and until you repent you're gone pretty much all the early church fathers had a problem with this guy Marcion I mean, the Greeks, the Latin early Christians didn't like him. Polycarp, he called him the firstborn of Satan. Justin Martyr, Arrhenius, Clement, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen. They didn't like Marcion. And there's a lot of reasons why they didn't like Marcion. He had a lot of problems with his theology. But really the big issue that we see with Marcion came from one core issue. And that he refused to believe that the God of the Old Testament was the same as the God of the New Testament, the Father of Jesus. He really struggled imagining that God could be a God full of wrath, that God could be a God 
also of justice. So he kind of made his own Bible. He threw out the entire Old Testament. He picked, he liked Luke's gospel as well as a couple other letters that he also edited along the way and really focused on the goodness of God and nothing else. And so his Bible was one that had a message of inspiration. It was morally uplifting and did away with all the uncomfortable bits about God's wrath and hell. I mean, we'd call it today kind of the Oprah Bible, I assume. That's what we would call it. And so this happened about 150, roughly, A.D. Now, as I said, our New Testament letters... Uh, the Old Testament had already pretty much been locked down at, at the councils of Jamnia in 80 and 118 uh, for the Old Testament. But even the New Testament, they were recognized. They were recognized, not maybe in a formal sense, but they were recognized. You travel to this church in Antioch or the church in Corinth, and, and they all pretty much recognized and understood, oh yeah, the, the books in our Protestant Bible, yeah, those are, those are, those are true. Those are authoritative. But with Marcion and this situation happening, and it actually caught on a lot of steam after he was excommunicated, he became really popular, actually started churches, and for about a hundred years, even after he died, were very successful. But this really started getting the wheels turning, thinking in many of the Christians' minds, we maybe need to at some point formalize, not anything new, but formalize what we already accept as authoritative that we've already been recognizing for centuries, we might benefit from, from doing that. And so in 367, Athanasius, who big fan of, he's the guy that we normally think of related to the Trinity. He was the first guy that actually kind of was like, there is one God in three persons, that's Athanasius. But in 367, he gave a list of what we have today, our 27 New Testament books and letters. And he, he was the first one to actually have some sort of formal list. Now, it wasn't that Athanasius was saying, these are the lists that I pick, kind of like in a fantasy-type draft, but rather, these are the letters that pretty much all the churches already recognize and have recognized for several centuries. About 30 years after Athanasius produced his list in 367, in 397 at the Council of Carthage, it was formally established, the 27 New Testament books. But my point in giving this answer to how we got our 66 books, our canon, is not to say that there was some sort of lottery system, a fantasy draft, this formalization was not to establish even anything new, but rather to formalize something that once again, and here's the key thing, the church had already been recognizing our books as authoritative, as scripture for the previous centuries since the early uh, writers of the New Testament. They simply, they put, they formalize it. And Marcion, like I said, he was very much the catalyst that led ultimately to that decisive point. And so, Anyways, I told you guys the first question would be the most thorough and in-depth, but uh, that is, and I could go much longer, but I figured five minutes is probably long enough. That's, that's really basically how we have our Bible today and the, and the history behind that. It's always really been recognized, those letters. So I'm going to jump to the next question. Hopefully these will come a little bit faster. The question is limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. Limited atonement versus unlimited atonement. Uh, limited atonement is usually the Calvinistic uh, uh, view, unlimited atonement, is the Arminian view. I'll preface this question, uh, which I think is really just asking to define these two up front with this in-house debate. There are people who love Jesus, who love the Lord, Arminians, Calvinists, who hold to limited or unlimited atonement. Um, to answer this question, to kind of kind of separate what's the big difference, we have to ask ourselves a couple key questions about the atonement. And when I say atonement, I mean 
what Jesus did on the cross. When he was on the cross, he atoned for our sins. He paid the debt for our sins. And so the question I think we have to ask when, before we start defining these terms is, for whom did Jesus die? Okay? You say, I don't think I need to answer that question, but it's an important question. Who did Jesus die for? Whom did he purchase all the benefits of salvation? Who was that for? My short answer, in unlimited atonement, the idea and the understanding is that Jesus died for the world, but he died not to purchase salvation, but rather to make salvation possible. Okay, that's, that's the big key factor there. In unlimited atonement, Jesus died for the world, and he died to make salvation possible. He died in the same way that I might go and unlock the door. I've made it now possible for you to walk through the door. In the Calvinist view, in limited atonement, also known as definite atonement, Jesus died not just to make salvation possible, but to actually secure salvation. In other words, he died to purchase all the benefits for, remember the question I asked at the beginning, for who? For his bride, for the church, for all who would believe. So in unlimited or definite atonement, I think it's probably more descriptive, he, just, he didn't just die to unlock the door, but rather to break the lock, kick the door open, go in, and actually grab the people who have been taken hostage to sin and death and take them out. And that's really the, the two big distinguishing factors between limited or definite atonement in that he didn't just make it possible, but secured salvation for his sheep, for the bride, for the church, and unlimited atonement, he made salvation possible, but ultimately that possibility is only there to assist the individual who is responsible for their own decisive choice. In unlimited atonement, the individual is very much center. It is up to the individual's own decisive choice. Jesus simply assists you. He only he just assists you. Where limited atonement, he doesn't just assist you. He does what you can't do for yourself. You can't walk through the door, the Calvinists would say, because you're chained to sin and death in the first place. And even if the door was unlocked, you'd never walk through it because you're dead in your sins. And so those are the two views, limited and definite atonement, the Calvinist view, and unlimited atonement, the classic Arminian view. So, oh, and by the way, at any point, if anyone has a question or follow-up follow clarification, you can slip your hand up and uh, we'll address that. And I'm guessing because I'm looking around the room and there are no hands, that must mean that either I've answered that question incredibly clearly or no one wants to bother asking a follow-up question. Here's the next question. Yes, Rebecca. Sorry. <laughs> um, so would that mean that like, he predestined who is more like he chose? So, so you kind of have a follow-up question and I've already looked through the stack of questions and that question is actually going to come up. Uh, I think I, I heard the word predestination. I saw it in the stack. It's going to come up. So we'll get that to that in a second. Any other questions about limited and unlimited atonement? Yes, Chris. Which one do you go for? <laughs> well, I'll tell you right now that uh, Chris asked me, uh, for those listening online, if you didn't hear it, he asked me which one do, do I subscribe to. I'll tell you right now, I have subscribed to both at different points in my life. Uh, early on in my life, I subscribed to the more Arminian position of unlimited atonement. Um, probably since about my second year in seminary, so 2010, I started beginning drifting to um, limited or definite atonement, and that's probably the camp I would say, f not probably, that's the camp I sit in today, so yeah. 
But once again, this is an in-house debate. There's people that love Jesus who hold to both these positions. And I say that um, because I, I think this is maybe not something we need to divide over. Um, there are certainly things we need to divide over. Uh, this is important. It's the atonement. I'm not saying it's not important. Um, but I'm saying there are people who love Jesus who hold to my former view on this. So, yeah. And uh, the, for, for more resources or information, uh, you can read John Piper's book, The Five Points. It's a free PDF download online. And actually, it's only a couple, it's only a couple pages long on this topic. Or you, if you don't like reading, you can go to YouTube and watch John Piper, Tulip. And there's like a 10-part series. And watch the one that's titled The Atonement or Limited Atonement uh, for more information that goes more in-depth than this Q&A will. So, uh, I don't see any other hands, so I'm going to keep pressing on. Here's the next question. This is all from the same person, by the way. They decided to write a whole bunch of questions on one card. Can, can we use creeds and confessions outside of the Bible if we hold to sola scriptura? So that's the question. Can we hold to creeds? Can we use creeds and confessions outside the Bible if we hold to sola scriptura? Uh, that is scripture alone. And my short answer is, yes, we can. And you say, how can we? And I would say, in the same way that we use and read Christian books and articles that help bring clarity uh, to different ideas that are presented in the Bible, okay? Um, and so creeds and confessions I don't think are a bad thing. They tend to be more of the, from the, on the liturgical side of things when it comes to churches. Um, but I don't think they're a bad thing. Uh, I think they can be a helpful way to maybe break down core beliefs in the Bible and uh, just kind of shed some light, shine some light on those things. And I think we can certainly benefit from them. And I would say, you know, we can use them very much in the same way that we use a lot of Christian books or literature articles online that we read. So that's my short answer. Good question, though. <sighs> okay. Is it biblical to say that we must read the Bible every day? So that's the question. Is it biblical to say that we must read the Bible every day? My answer is no. I don't think it is biblical to say that you must read the Bible every day. However, however, I think the nature of this question brings up potentially a heart issue. Why wouldn't you? When Joshua tells us in chapter 1, verse 8, do not let the law of the Lord depart from your mouth, right? Or rather, that's the instruction for Joshua the Lord gives to him. Or the psalmist says in Psalms 1, 2, to meditate on the law day and night. Now, I don't want to get like legalistic here and say, yes, you have to read your Bible every single day because... You know, Hezekiah 3, you know, or yeah, Hezekiah, the, or the third book of Hezekiah says, blah, 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 you have to read your Bible. I, I don't see that. But I also say, well, why wouldn't you read your Bible every day? Every single day you're being lied to. Every single day you're coming under attack. Criticism, accusations from the devil, from his demons. A lot of people don't even realize that. You're coming under spiritual attack. You're like, every, like, like, when I say, like, you don't even realize that, like, for, we go throughout our days, and I think we, because we don't see maybe spiritual warfare portrayed in the way movies do, that we think that's not the case. I remember I had a professor come to my class one time. He said, are there demons in the room right now? Think about that. Like, in this room right now, could there not be demons in here? 
And then he followed it up and said, well, then could there not also be angels also? My point in, in raising the same question that my professor did is to point the, t- the fact that if you're being lied to every day, if you're being attacked every single day, then what's the best way to counter lies? Yeah, I heard, I heard a whole bunch of people say it under their breath. The truth, right? That's, so why, like, I think there's maybe a heart issue. So no, like, I don't think it's, I don't think um, it's biblical to say you must read it, but why wouldn't you read it? Why, why wouldn't you read it? Why wouldn't you join with the prophet Jeremiah and say, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts, Jeremiah 15, 16. I want to I devour God's word because it, it brings me joy and happiness. Or does it not bring you joy and happiness? If you're being lied to, wouldn't you want truth? So I, I think at the core of this, uh, my answer is no. I don't think it's biblical, but... At the same time, I'd say, well, why wouldn't you? I think there's a deep heart issue maybe behind this, this very question. So, um, once again, I don't see any hands coming up, so I'm going to drive on to the next question. What does it mean as Christians when we fail? What does it mean as Christians as we fail? Now, not sin, but fail as in we fail in obligation or an objective. It could be sin. And I think there's maybe an assumption here that, all right, it's, I'm not doing something that clearly Scripture prohibits. So it's not, it's not a sin, but I'm just failing obligation. So maybe my obligation is, uh, or I'm failing an objective. Maybe my objective is to, um, maybe my objective is to score a, a certain very reasonable number on a PT test. Okay, I point out the ROTC guys in the room. Maybe my objective is to uh, do certain uh, to do to do well on a test that I, I've studied for. Hopefully, now is it sinful if I miss that objective? Maybe because if you've been lazy and you haven't been doing due diligence, if you know you struggle with push-ups or sit-ups or the run, or you've been lazy. Okay, now we're dealing with a sin, right? Okay, we're dealing with the sin, right? Because I've put off studying for an exam I know I'm going to have to do, or an assignment I know I'm going to have to do, and I keep putting that off, putting that off, putting that off. And now I'm not only lazy, but I've, I, I've turned very much into the sluggard that Solomon warns us about in Proverbs, and I've also I've not been a good representative of Christ as his image bearer, as his representative, and I've wasted precious time that God has given to me. And so I would say... Yeah, it could be a sin. Or James 4.17. It's a sin when you know the right thing and fail to do it. Okay? I think that that's the thing. I'm not saying because you don't score this score or get this grade, that's a sin. But if that score or grade is very much within like the realm of possibility, and it's just a matter of you haven't done due diligence and you've wasted the time that God has given to you, then yeah. Now you're a sluggard, as Solomon would say. Okay, you'd say you're lazy and you've wasted God's time and you're not representing him well. So that's that's how I would speak to that issue right there. Are some people called by God to live their whole lives single and never marry? I think all the people in here are like, mm, I rebuke that right now. Uh, <laughs> um, my short answer is yes, some people are. First Corinthians 7, 6-7. I wish that all were like me, Paul tells us. 
and uh, had this gift of singleness? So I think my short answer is, yeah, some people are called by God to live their whole lives as single and never marry. Um, for the 93% of you in the room, good news, you're probably going to get married. For the 7% of you, you probably won't get married. That's an arbitrary number. I heard a pastor quote it one time. I don't know if it's true or not, what the actual numbers are. Uh, but, yeah, uh, I'll, give you, I'll, I'll go a little bit further. I, I have a friend who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, and, uh, you know, he's told me flat out, like he's, he says, you know, he, he thinks people like himself are probably called to singleness. Um, uh, and that's just, you know, it's something where he, I know this, I'm going off topic a little, but just to illustrate, like, who would that be? Because that might be a follow-up question. Who might that person be? And I think that might be the case for someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. Um, uh, and so, um, I think that could be one possibility. I think there's, it's, it's also within the realm of possibility that you don't struggle with same-sex attraction, but for one reason or another, um, God has just given you such a spirit of contentment that you're like, yeah, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't, which I think is a wonderful place to be for everyone. Um, it's hard. Uh, and I, you say, oh, that's easy to say because you're married. Um, yes, but it wasn't when I wasn't married, and it doesn't make it any less true as I'm saying it right now. And so that's what I would, I would say to that. Yes, I think some people are called by God. Paul was one. 1 Corinthians 7, 6-7 makes it very clear. Um, furthermore, follow-up question. Should men, deviating on the topic, should men, or you could say women, he doesn't say women, it just says should men, should men avoid friendships with women if they are inclined to develop feelings for them? Should men, I think you could apply it to women, should women avoid friendships with men if women are inclined to develop feelings for the guy or vice versa? So, yeah. What do you guys think about that? Chris says no. Ebenezer raised his hand. Right. I, like, I don't think it's possible for a guy and a girl to be best friends okay. and one of them not have any feelings for it. So, so and, and just in case you didn't hear that, Eb said, I don't think it's possible for a guy and a girl to be best friends and not one of the two develop feelings. Yeah, and I think there's a clarifier. You use the word best, right? So it, it amps up the level of friendship. Because Diane and I went through all these questions earlier, and I'm like, well, you can't avoid, if you're a guy, you can't avoid girls. I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, uh, you, you couldn't come to, really, you couldn't be a part of the church, you know, which is made up of men and women and avoid girls. But the question was friendship. Should I avoid friendship? And I guess I think, Corey, you had a hand up. So, and Olivia's got a hand. So I'm going to stop talking. What do you say, Corey? I think, I think that uh, learning how to love Females as your sister in Christ is part of your path of holiness. A path of holiness, I would say, certainly Paul's instructions in First Timothy chapter five, one and two, right? Treat the younger women as sisters and all purity. purity. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that avoiding girls or avoiding becoming their friends is, in a sense, disobedience to trying to love the people of God the well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Olivia's got a hand up. Olivia. I Friendship, like, what are you talking about? Like, are you talking about like the type of friendship where you can just say, like, encourage each other and you, know, you can have a good time? Or are you talking about like, I'm gonna leave my wife at home and go have coffee with this other girl because like we're being 
BFFs, like that's weird. Sure, yeah. yeah. Like I think it depends on like what level of friendship. Yeah, yeah. And so Livy's just talking about how how are we actually defining this? So once again, the question is: is should men avoid friendships with women if they are inclined to develop feelings for them? Um, and Corey, back to you. Yes. I like to tie the two questions together. If you feel like you have the gift of singleness, do you think it is wise to have a, like a large amount of female friends? Okay. So you would want to almost bring like bring a second question: Is it wrong to have a large degree of female friends? Yeah. And um, I think there's a question of in any situation is why? Why do I have so many female friends? Um, why do I? Why do I feel the need to? Um, am I even aware of it? This maybe oftentimes individuals are not even aware of these things. Maybe there's a there's a need that having so many female friends or having so many male friends, so many guy friends, a need that is being met in my life that right now I'm not looking to Jesus to meet. And maybe it's a result of some past hurt or pain that I've experienced, trauma. I don't know. Um, and so I think there's, there's certainly, it raises questions. I think some people, because we all know people, right? We all know people where it's like, oh yeah, that guy has lots of female friends or that girl has lots of guy friends. And oftentimes in those situations, I, I think it's especially true for the girl who has tons of guys friends. Those girls are like, Man, they are all tracking her, right? Because it's like she's got these guy friends, but she's like, wait, was she just holding their hand? Like, I mean, it's, you know, you know those girls, right? Those girls, they've existed for centuries. So um, I think that raises another level of question. But the, the key question we'll come back to is, should it be avoided? And um, I don't think you can, av- I don't, I, th- I think it, I think it's when you're saying avoiding it, um, I think that's concerning to me because we are supposed to treat the younger women as sisters in all purity, not treat the younger women as sisters and let, you know and and be their friends, be their be their brother um, with a with a clarifier unless unless you are just crushing on all the girls. Um, there's no clarifier there, and I think that might be for an individual who struggles with that something to pray through. God help me to treat them. As sisters, sisters first, sisters first, right? Um, I don't think you can avoid them, um, and I think friendships, especially if you're, if you have a healthy friendship, can be a really healthy, great thing. Um, and so, yeah, I don't know if anyone else has anything to contribute. Olivia does, so go ahead, Olivia, and Brandon does too. I just like raise the question in my mind: Why are you developing? feelings for every girl that you become friends with why are you developing feelings for every girl that you become friends with that's what you said yeah like if you can't just be friends with someone of the opposite gender without developing feelings for them like there's probably something right so there's there's maybe like a neediness like maybe i I gotta have a girlfriend right so like and we we talked about this i think uh in in a sermon back in september the joshua one where they're warned against getting into romantic relationships and so the idea is like right i think an application is like Every girl or every guy, oh, maybe he's my future husband. Maybe he's my future. Maybe she's my... Like, first and foremost, like, just calm down, Superman. Like, she's your sister first. Just just chillax. And I, and I say this because, actually, two years ago, it was a huge problem. I'm coming to you in a second, Brandon. It was a big problem because, like, we had so few girls at the church. And part, part of the reason, and I hate to say this, is like... The guys were kind of not helping the process. They were like scaring the girls away. Like the girls, would sh- the girls would be there like one week and be like, "Oh, look, a girl," as if they've never seen them in their natural habitat before. 
And so they like they go up and they start hitting on them or asking them their number and it just scared the girls. Like it would scare them terribly. So uh, yeah, I think we need to uh, adjust. Brandon, you had a thought on this. The easiest way to answer this question is to recognize that that verse would not be in Paul's epistle if we were supposed to 100% avoid the opposite sex. The first Timothy five, true. Right. Yeah. 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 Good thought. Um, man, guys. <laughs> There obviously is going to need to be a part three on this because we burned through like four questions. But you know what? We could do one more. I just keep thinking about prayer pod time. But do you believe cessationism to be true, Joe? If so, why? Um, If you're not familiar with cessationism, uh, John MacArthur is a cessationist. Loves Jesus. Okay, great guy. I love his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. Cessationism is the idea that the miraculous gifts have ceased. Specifically, this usually refers to gifts of healing, gifts of prophecy in a foretelling the future sort of way, uh, or a thus says the Lord type of uh, way, and especially tongues. And so cessationists would argue that the miraculous gifts have ceased, and they would base this on 1 Corinthians 13.10, Um, that says, when the perfect has come, the imperfect shall pass away. It's a loose paraphrase. Um, And so it raises the question, really, well, what is the perfect? And the cessationists would argue, well, the perfect is the close of the apostolic age, the close of the canon of Scripture. Not the earlier canon, um, but basic, yes, the earlier canon, um, but in the sense that when the last writer, John, penned Revelation, Right, that's the, that's the end of the canon. Uh, the last books written. That's the end of the apostolic age, and then miracles, the especially sign gifts that we call them, they weren't needed any longer because we had the word of God, and so they would see the perfect in First Corinthians thirteen ten being God's word. Of course, the other school of thought is the perfect that we're waiting for to come is not the scripture or the end of the apostolic age that has come, but rather it is the second coming of Christ. Therefore, all of these gifts are still in play. Uh, those are the two points of view. I, I just want to represent this fair and balanced. Um, do you believe cessation is to be true? My short answer is no, I don't. Um, I said this in the membership class on Sunday. I consider myself to be a charismatic, but with the seatbelt on, I find that's a very comfortable position. Uh, uh, and um, I am I'm open, but I'm also uh, very cautious. Um, and so maybe if you come from a, a very charismatic background, uh, this is a very normative thing. It's obviously not very normal at Lynchburg City Church, but it doesn't mean that because it's not normal that we would say it's not legit. I think oftentimes it's not legit, um, but that doesn't mean we should throw the baby out with the bathwater. In fact, First Thessalonians chapter 5 would say, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, right? In other words, that when you hear, say, a prophecy, test it. And um, on this note, I think there's a great illustration of stealing this from Piper, like I do many things. He steals, see, I, I steal it from Piper, but he steals it from Edwards, and Edwards steals it from Augustine, and Augustine steals it from Paul. So, you know, we make it back, and Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, case in point. So, Piper finished preaching a sermon. A woman comes up to him with a note and says, God gave me this word for you. Gives him a note. Opens the note. Now, his wife at the time, Noel, was pregnant with their third child, I think. And the note says that your wife is going to die and give birth to a baby girl in the process of childbirth. He 
takes the note and thanks the woman and goes home and he says, God, I don't know what to do with this. He's crying. He's, I don't know what to do with this. And um, his wife ends up giving birth, not to a baby girl, but to a baby boy. And uh, she is still alive to this day. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. So we say in that sense, uh, false, false prophecy. Uh, you could also say false prophet. Um, and I, I really like the, the Deuteronomy 18 sort of way when it comes to prophetic words. I say this kind of tongue-in-cheek because um, I remember my one friend, I've had, I have a very charismatic friend and once again, I'm a charismatic, but with a seatbelt on. And, you know, he's come before and he said, yeah, I think God's given me this word, like, um, President Obama is not going to win re-election in his second term, right? Or, or, you know, something like that. That obviously didn't come true. And I said, listen, like, I'm all for, like, but let's, let's, let's be legit about this, okay? Because here's the thing. When it comes to prophets in the Bible, they had, a, they had at least in the Old Testament, they had a 100% batting average, which is why I use the Old Testament. In other words, um, prophets didn't get, like, it 98% right. They got it 100% right. And if they didn't, according to Deuteronomy 18, you kill them. So I said, listen, I'm all for, like, if you want to give it, like, a prophecy, but let's just do it Old Testament style. So uh, if you get it wrong, we'll kill you. I, I, I really like that approach because uh, I think it, I think, you know, especially in lieu of the, uh, in light of the Piper story, uh, you see like the abuses. But Paul gives that, gives that word right in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And the reason to test is because I think he's concerned that, oh, by the way, there might be people like that to come, but you shouldn't necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so that would be my short answer. And the follow-up is, will you come with me to a Pentecostal church just for the heck of it? So uh, with that, on that note, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to end there. This is part two of the, the Q&A night, guys.